Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to episode two of the Reframers Podcast. I am Zach. And I'm Erin. And I'm Cassie. And today we are going to be talking about gun control. So uh, a very hot topic today in the United States, and we thought what a great time to jump in and kind of break this down, have a discussion. Um, And so that's what we're going to do today. Yep. Super excited. Just so everyone knows, Zach and I both did lots of research and have lots of feelings about this. So it should be a really interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually going to be the first time that we have talked about this, Aaron and I, at all. So some of the things like we've talked about the Electoral College before, we've talked about um, some other just kind of general things, but this, you know, very kind of central and seems like ever present topic in American politics, this will be our first time. So um, we're both pretty excited to, to break it down for you today. So simple explanation for what gun control is. Gun control laws are basically anything that the government, whether it's the federal or the states, will pass or propose that in some way regulate either the purchase, the possession, the sale, the transfer, or the transport of firearms. And so that would include like pistols, shotguns, rifles. So gun control laws are just a way the government will try to either limit or punish certain actions involving guns. As we like to do in the Reframers podcast, we like to give people a bit of a context. Where does this debate come from? You know, what's the kind of historical significance to it? And for this one, it's kind of an easy, it's an easy inception point, although there's a lot of roots to it. So the Second Amendment of the Constitution is where all of this comes from. So the Second Amendment states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. And I just want to add here that the debate over gun control and the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment is complicated, partly because people disagree on what the Second Amendment means and what it protects. And that has been a battle for a very long time until very recently when the Supreme Court decided in the District of Columbia versus Heller decision that the Second Amendment did guarantee guns as an individual right, as opposed to the right to bear arms only in a military setting. But there's been lots of debates about that. So one of the reasons that gun rights have been questioned over time is partly because of a disagreement on what the founders actually meant when they said right to bear arms. Yeah, and this is one of the times where the founders kind of did us a disservice because the phrasing is weird. The Second Amendment isn't even like a real sentence. It's just a jumble of like thoughts uh, and, and phrases grouped together. And so a lot of the confusion that, you know, that we have in our debate today comes from the phrase, a well-regulated militia. What did the founders mean by militia? Was it individual members of a society, uh, you know, this individual citizens keeping and bearing arms together? Um, or was it a designated you know, defined group of people that belong to a militia and they can keep arms. So that's where the confusion comes from. Um, and it's, of you know, this like 20 word phrase has been interpreted in hundreds of different ways to, to get all different kinds of meanings out of it. 
And for clarity, the idea that this amendment dealt with the military and owning guns under a military presence is called the militia theory. And then the theory that you can just own guns by yourself and that your right to own guns is the individual rights theory. So for terminology's sake. I have some quotes from the founders that that are in no way conclusive. You know, they're not, as Aaron mentioned last week in our um, Electoral College episode, the founders were rarely uh, unanimous in their beliefs of what was the right way to go, what the right system was. You can kind of maybe pick up on some themes. And so some of the quotes from the founders are, you know, very pro segment, but as Aaron pointed out, that there were some gun control laws that were in existence in the um, colony charters. So um, one of the quotes that I have here is just from John Adams saying, um, arms in the hands of citizens may be used at individual discretion in private self-defense. So that's something that kind of points to the individual right where he thought, you know, based off the statement, that is a, an individual right for self-defense. Um, and then from Thomas Jefferson, Laws that forbid the carrying of arms are laws of such a nature. Such laws make things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailant. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicides, for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. Aaron, maybe um, if you can talk about some of the early gun control laws that existed uh, in the colonies. Yeah, really interesting. So I didn't know this before, but I found in my research that basically as long as there's been a right to own guns, there's been gun control laws. So in 1785, there was a law uh, written by James Madison, actually, for uh, the Virginia legislature that uh, had penalties on hunting deer. And we don't necessarily think of that as a gun control law, but it actually affected how people could use their guns. There were also laws about uh, <laughs> um, registering guns, which sounds crazy sometimes to people today, the idea that you'd have to register all of your guns. But at musters, government officials would inspect people's guns and account them on public rolls. And back then, one of the reasons for that was to make sure that all of these guns were in good working order, should the militia need to be called up and everyone needed to have a gun that worked. But this is just an early example of gun control law. And then on a sort of darker turn, there were also gun control laws about slaves and certain other people owning guns, and they were not allowed to own guns for obvious reasons. So that's sort of the dark side of gun control. And that has actually existed throughout history. Um, some of the strictest gun control laws came out of desire to suppress certain populations from owning firearms. And it, it was interesting just looking at this history, it kind of the gun control laws go across time. So as the nation developed in the Wild West, when you entered new towns, you had to drop your guns off at the sheriff's office, you get a slip and you would not carry your gun around town. That's a, that's a gun control law. So they're actually sort of peppered throughout our history. So as long as we've had gun rights, we've also had some various forms of gun control. I think that's that's great, and, and thanks for the little history background on that. I, I wasn't really aware of that either, so that's uh, interesting to note. And it just goes to show you that, you know, today the nation feels very divided. Things feel very contentious, but, like, this is not new. The country's always literally from its inception had disagreements based off of what people thought was right because I'm sure people that had to have their muskets inspected by, uh, you know, Virginia State 
1786 were, you know, upset that they had people coming in and looking at their stuff. So anything else we want to add on the historical context part of the show? The only other thing I want to add is I mentioned the Heller case previously. So I, I mentioned this very recent history. That case was passed in 2008, which is recent history for gun rights, actually. It's interesting because it was one of the most originalist opinions in that the majority and the dissent argued from a originalism perspective of saying, well, the founders thought this versus the founders thought that, uh, which isn't actually how the Supreme Court normally breaks down all the decisions. I mean, there are originalists, Scalia being the most uh, well-known of the originalists, but that's not something that I would say most liberal justices would, would identify themselves as originalists, but they made originalist arguments. And in this five to four decision, the uh, majority ended up finding, no, this is a right. It's an individual right. It's not um, under the militia theory. And so you do have an individual right to own guns. So that's where the law stands right now. So, you know, you can debate over what the founders thought. And if you think that the Second Amendment is under this militia theory, but as we're operating in our society today, you have an individual right to own a gun. So thanks. Yeah. And, and I just quickly pulled up the, if I could, maybe the summary of what the Supreme Court's decision was. They said, the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes, such as defense within the home. So it's obviously like a one sentence, but it is the text of what Aaron was describing, that it's not a militia right where I have to be a part of California, you know, militia men organization, I can just lawfully possess a firearm for my own self-defense. We thought it would be helpful to define some of the terms that are often found in gun control discussions. And I just would want to add that the reason I think we think this is important is because there are certain terms out there that get used a lot by only certain people or only certain media outlets and your understanding of an issue we're only human we speak with a language with words and that syntax really matters and I think understanding what a definition of an actual physical piece of machinery is or or does matters and so we're hoping to sort of distill it down where it makes it less emotional so that we can kind of build up from there and talk about it. Thanks, Cassie. Yeah, that's a great point. We picked out five that I, I, we think are important for people to know in the discussion going forward. So oftentimes you'll hear the term semi-automatic. So semi-automatic is basic level is when you have bullets in a gun. When you pull the trigger one time, one bullet comes out. So for every bullet you would like to shoot from that gun, you have to pull the trigger that many times. That is in contrast to an automatic weapon where you have all the bullets loaded in the magazine and a magazine is just a device that contains the bullets within. So you have all the bullets in the magazine and you hold down the trigger and as long as you hold the trigger, bullets will come out until the magazine is empty. So that's kind of the, the main difference in most common firearms today is automatic versus semi-automatic. Um, I mentioned magazine earlier, and like I said, the magazine is just a device that 
you insert into the actual gun itself that holds the bullets within. There's some that are, you'll hear this a lot too, you'll hear um, large capacity magazines, which are 30 bullets per magazine versus 10. And some states um, have ban on, on high capacity magazines, but the difference is just that they hold 10 rounds in a small or a regular versus 30 in a large capacity. Now, when you hear people say a clip, a clip is another device that is used to hold bullets, but it's the bullets are not encased in anything. It's almost like a, like a spine, and then off the spine comes the bullet. So a, a gun that uses a clip is much more rare. Most of your handguns um, and your, your rifles use a magazine for containing the bullets. And then another term that is uh, you'll hear a lot is a bump stock and people wanting to either restrict or outlaw bump stocks. And a bump stock is, is an aftermarket device. Most firearms are not sold with a bump stock by default, uh, but it's a device that can be attached to a semi-automatic firearm that replaces the traditional stock, which is the part that just rests against your shoulder. So it's just the, the brace of the, of the rifle. So it's a device that can be attached that replaces the stock enabling it to fire bullets more rapidly. Um, basically, it's kind of like a, a spring assist for your gun. So it will, it's a device that will absorb the recoil of your weapon, you know, the, the backwards force when you shoot a, a bullet, it will absorb that and then it will use that energy to allow the weapon to fire more quickly than just pulling with your finger. So that's what a, a bump stock is. I think next we want to talk about what we're agreed on here really is so what are we looking what's the bottom line that we're looking to when we're talking about something like gun rights and gun control and uh, we wanted to do this at the beginning of our discussion as opposed to the end because it's a really hot topic and there's a lot of emotions around it particularly because of mass shootings and just the destruction that guns have cause. So we wanted to just get on the same page about the goals here. So Zach, what do you think? What, what is our goal here when we're talking about gun control and gun rights? My goal is that we want less people to die from full stop, less people to die. And then what's the, what is the best way to achieve that? Mm -hmm. I think the big, a big question to that end is well, what kind of gun control makes sense? And this is a question that we'll unpack because people disagree on, on what makes sense here. But um, I think that's part of it, too, because that really goes into how people think about guns and who should have them and when you should have them and all of the questions related to owning guns. Yeah, that's that's I would agree that that's like kind of a secondary goal is like, OK, what's the where do we balance the rights of individuals versus like the safety of the individual? I mean, that's kind of the the whole thing, right, is how are we? keep people safe while also not trampling on people's rights. And when is, when is gun control appropriate? Because it is at times. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where do we want to begin? It's a big topic. Um, there's a lot of different elements to gun control. Well, where I would like to start is I just want to give an overview. So gun control isn't an issue that I would say is one that sets my heart afire. It's not one of the things that I have in the past been as passionate about, not that I don't care about it, but there's just other things that I think get me more hyped up. Um, 
So looking into this, I learned so much, so much more than I expected. And I just wanted to share one of the biggest things that I came away from through studying for this was that there is a history and it's a long history of gun rights and gun ownership in the United States. And it's more ingrained in our culture than I think a lot of people realize, particularly people who are in liberal areas where there aren't a lot of guns, or if there are guns, they don't know about them in the same way, their friends don't own guns, all of that. And I think that it's an echo chamber issue a little bit, thinking that, well, we should just be a country that doesn't have guns. That's not what our country is. It's not what it's ever been. And realistically, and maybe this is cynical if you're a person that you know envisions a country that doesn't have guns, realistically, that's not where we're going. There are way too many guns in the United States for the goal to be no guns. And it's also a protected right now. And that's another thing that I think on the opposite side, could be tempered as well. There's always a fear of, oh, well, gun control laws are going to lead to a slippery slope where we don't have our guns. That's just not going to happen. It's a guaranteed right under the Constitution. And so I think that I got a much better sense of the extremes and where they're coming from. And it helped me to understand how much people aren't listening to each other when we come into a conversation about gun control. So that's a good point, um, Aaron, and I, I, I think I agree with that. And and it, I mean, it's it's with everything, right? There's always a very vocal minority that is obvious. They're often not obvious, but often on the extremes of a position for any topic. Um, and I'll say that that for being on the side that is that is very much pro Second Amendment and pro individual individual right to bear arms. What makes me nervous as as somebody who's a gun owner and who's a, a Second Amendment advocate is you have people that, that are prominent positions of power, like, say, Dianne Feinstein, who in the uh, assault weapons ban back in 1992, I think, or 94, she's on like 60 Minutes and she says, if I had the votes in the Senate to turn all the guns in, you know, Mr. and Mrs. America, turn them in. I think that's like a direct quote. That's what scares me. And so while I know it's a sec it's a constitutional right, it's protected, and the logistics of going towards that end are a nightmare. How are you going to enforce a na you know, we, we own more guns than any other nation in the world. The, the logistics of it are a nightmare. It's the rhetoric that some of these people that are on the very vocal minority on the other side that, that make people nervous. And so I think it just is a constant, like, Pong battle, upping the rhetoric and the emotions. Yeah, uh, to be fair, in 1994, this wasn't a protected individual right. You know, the Heller decision hadn't come out yet. And so it was still this militia theory right under the existing case law at the time. Um, but I, I get it. I think that and I think that that sort of fear is something that I mean, the NRA in particular is good at tapping into. And that's where a lot of their platform comes from, sales of guns tend to go up after mass shootings because people get afraid that there's going to be legislation that will take away their guns. And threats to gun rights 
increase gun sales. It's really ironic mm-hmm. that that's how it works, but it is. And some of the laws on gun control greatly increased uh, participation in the NRA. Mm-hmm. So the attacks on gun control have actually, actually really, or on gun rights have actually really helped the NRA gain members and gain money. Um, so, but from my side, from the other side, I think that there's gun control that needs to happen. And it's not everything that we have right now, but there's again, these extremes. And I just, I just don't think I realized how extreme the extremes are. And I don't think they're vocal minorities. I think it's majorities on both sides because it's a more complicated issue than I think a lot of people realize. And on the gun rights side, it's anything that's a law about guns is ultimately going to lead to our guns being taken away. Mm -hmm. And on the gun control side, it's any law that's about guns, even if it's not effective, is something that we need to pass. Mm -hmm. And those are both extremes, but I think they're vocal majorities, not actually vocal minorities. And this is one of the problems, I think, with this debate is that we don't actually have a lot of conversation in the middle, hardly any, Mm -hmm. actually. And, um, it's pushing people to these extremes because those are the only messages that they can go to right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think, I think that that is a good point. And I, I think it's important to know because oftentimes the emotion of the debate is where people jump from. Like that's the start. That's their leading appeal is the emotional side of things. Well, uh, you know, you, you, you point to the mass shootings or you point to the proposed legislation and it's, it's fear on one side and it's, um, you know, empathy and compassion on the other, and each are emotional drivers towards a specific goal. But I think it's important to note that, that and I, I will say, our media has done, is so influential in this, in Americans' perception of this debate, because according to Pew Research, there's violent crime from 1993 to 2019, which violent crime is including homicides right so all all gun related deaths whether it's through a mass shooting or just a a, a, you know domestic abuse issue or whatnot violent crime has decreased by like half from 1993 to 2019 Uh, and property crime has also decreased about half per hundred thousand in that same time period so there's a huge trend down in terms of violent crime and property crime in the last almost 20 years, but the perception amongst Americans by the same Pew Research poll, 60% of adults think that crime is actually higher than it was the year before every year that that survey was conducted. So while our nation is getting safer overall, there's less gun deaths every year. Uh, that's sorry, not true, but the per capita is going down. Our perception of it is that it's running rampant and growing bigger every year. And I think that that's important context to start from is that we are getting safer relatively than we were two decades ago. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I agree with you. I think we're going to probably have a conversation about the media at some point. But this is an issue that's perpetuated by all media outlets. It's a huge problem. And I mean, many people, you probably saw the article about the U.S.'s reporting on COVID and how it was so much more negative than the other countries reporting on COVID. And it's because we as Americans just consume these negative stories more. And so there's more interest in the media and then there's more money. um, And it's a really vicious cycle. It's not that our crime rates are getting 
so terrible. And it, I, it makes me think of how the left and the right have each used this to different degrees in politics. And I think another thing that's important to mention about gun violence, and this is something that everyone knows, but then kind of forgets when we start talking about gun control, is that most gun deaths are suicides, not homicides. And this is one of the big issues when you're talking about gun control. You know, how do you prevent people who are suicidal from getting guns? Um, so I have some statistics I just want to say so that we know. Uh, this is from the Gun Violence Archive. It's a really great website that monitors uh, gun violence statistics in different states, across different um, organizations. And so it's a, it's a good place to look for uh, these statistics. So in 2020, the total amount of deaths um, from guns was 43,553. Of those, uh, homicides, murders, and unintentional deaths were 19,397. And suicides were 24,156. So you can see, I mean, it's 25,000 more or 2,500 more people died from suicide than from homicide from weapons in 2020. So a lot of the gun control laws, which, like I said, I support and I think there's more that needs to be done, but a lot of them are not targeted at where most of the deaths are actually coming from, which is from suicide. Yeah, and that those figures are, are supported widely in other research as well. So um, CDC data supports that as well as um, a, a pretty in-depth study done by 538 that was visually great. So I'm going to include like all of the ref stuff that we're referencing today in the show notes. So when you go to the show and you rate us five stars because we're amazing podcasters, you'll be able to find all of these resources listed out there. And yeah, that I mean, going back to 2012 that is basically holds true that around two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides and so the solution for that is different than the solution for a homicide and a solution for a, a gang homicide is different than a, a mass shooting like those are all very different scenarios that cannot in my opinion at least cannot have a one-size-fits-all fix yep i agree so i mean now that we're on the topic of legislation. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a whole timeline of legislation. You can pretty much look it up anywhere. If you just Google timeline of gun control legislation, there's not actually that much. Um, if you're looking at federal legislation, there's a lot more in the States, but it's interesting how it's developed over time. So there were, you know, black codes in the 1860s that prevented African-Americans from owning guns. So that's post-slavery, but um, still used to prevent populations from having guns. The first major legislation was in 1927. It was the Miller Act, and it banned mailing concealed weapons. And then there's more going through the 30s. There's the Federal Firearms Act in 1938, um, which required federal licenses to sell guns. And that's a big deal one because that still exists today in terms of having federal licensing. This is one of the big issues. In the 1960s, 1968, there was more legislation after the Kennedy assassination. And then in um, the 1980s, there was more legislation after the attempted assassination of Reagan. So you can see that the, the development of gun control laws follows these sort of big historical events. And then in the 1990s were um, two of the big acts, the Crime Control Act of 1990, which is now expired, expired in 2004, and the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, Brady Act, you've probably heard of it. This is one of the biggest gun control laws in recent history. 
And this had a waiting period on gun purchases. It required background checks, um, which the Supreme Court has since said the federal government can't require states to do background checks. They can choose to do them, but they can't require them to do them. And I just want to mention those so everyone gets a sense of the landscape that we're looking at when we talk about gun control. So it's not actually that much legislation. After Sandy Hook, which was the mass shooting in the elementary school that killed 27 people, 21 of them were six and seven-year-olds. So it was one of the, the worst and saddest and most horrific uh, mass shootings. There was an attempt to do additional legislation, um, but that actually ended up getting defeated. And then there was also very recently legislation after Parkland, which was a high school shooting where 17 people died. And that brung the March for Our Lives, which was where the high school students at Parkland organized a march on Washington. And uh, President Trump was actually working with them, working with uh, people in Congress to start and do more uh, gun control legislation at that time. But then that also ended up not going through. In fact, that legislation was never even drafted. When we decided we wanted to talk about gun control, I think all the context is really important. And knowing the landscape, knowing the terminology matters because it prevents us from striking an opinion, an aggressive anti the person you're talking to opinion right away, which I think is really valuable. But I think for me, one of my questions is, it can be really hard to talk to people about this kind of thing because it feels like you you brought to my mind when you said there was legislation that was brought up after Sandy Hook that didn't end up getting implemented. And so I, I feel like that kind of sentence, not that anything you said was wrong, but that kind of sentence holds emotion in it for a lot of people that hear it of feeling like, oh my gosh, this horrific act has happened. Why is nothing being done? Why why can't we prevent this? Who would not want something to pass that would keep people and children safer? And so I think I just wanted to bring that thought up in our minds because it's something that as a layman, I feel like that is what we see on the media is, oh, like these people don't want to protect us. X, Y, and Z, whoever you are, whoever us is. Do you guys have thoughts on that? No, I think it's a good point. I mean, that's that's the that's the meat of the issue, right? Is that when there's something that is proposed, there's always opposition. And why is there opposition? I'll say one of the most, I think, productive conversations that I've had before about this topic is actually with your folks cast when we were in Washington, D.C. They were kind of questioning me on my stance about where I felt about gun control and I mean, I think that a lot of the perception, and I could be wrong, but the perception is is that people on the on the right are every gun law is an infringement. And there are people that feel that way. But I'll say, me personally, I feel like it does make sense to have some gun control legislation, kind of like we, we alluded to earlier about what is, you know, in, in the opening of this topic, what is appropriate in the safety versus liberty trade-off. And I think, you know, limiting possession of firearms to people until they're a certain age makes sense. I support that. If you're a convicted felon, you shouldn't have a gun. I think that if you uh, have domestic violence claims against you, deprive people of a tool to more easily commit domestic violence. Like these are things that I think are making sense. And I'll add that I, I think that the background check 
process that we have. You know, Aaron mentioned one of the acts establishes the a federal firearms licensed dealer. That to me makes a lot of sense. I don't support a national registry. I don't support having to register your firearms with the government, but I do think that having a background check done on you before you buy a gun makes a lot of sense because there are people that are obviously want to do harm to people. And so if we can make it more difficult for those individuals to procure weapons, I'm in support of that. So I don't think that all gun control is bad. I, where I take issue is when I, as a like law-abiding citizen, would have my rights infringed where I know my gun is not going to commit a murder. Like my gun is, I'm, I keep it safe, I'm responsible, I've gone through my background check, but when you tell me that I can't own my gun anymore or I or have to go through undue process to obtain a gun, that's where my kind of red flag goes up. And so while I do think that, you know, every mm. every death is a tragedy, I, I'm I'm not like that's I, I don't even feel like we need to talk about that because obviously a school shooting is any mass shooting, but a school shooting is is horrific, but it's are, is the goal to minimize death or is the goal to punish gun owners? Just mentioning, you know, I get worried when people say they're going to take my gun away. I, you know, I kind of mentioned this before, like I get it. Feinstein said it in 1994, people say it, but like your guns aren't going to be taken away. And this is just, uh, to me, this is just this fear tactic and it's how people get drawn into more extremes. And I don't think that you're extreme. I don't think what you're saying is extreme, but I think that this is the method of doing it. And it's really hard when you're looking at the legislation, especially the legislation that hasn't passed. You just, you have to talk about the NRA, you know, and the NRA full lobbying group in the United States. I think that you can make that argument. It knows what it's doing. It's vastly supported, has so much money and they're good lobbyists. And part of the reason that some of these gun control laws are not as effective as they could be is because of NRA lobbying. And so it's easy to say, oh, a gun control law isn't effective or it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing when it has holes carved out of it. So one of those holes is background checks. And this is something that you've probably heard. It's uh, often referred to as the gun show loophole. It's not just gun shows, to be clear. You have to have a background check to purchase a gun from a federally licensed seller. But People who are not federally licensed can sell guns. So these are private sellers. You can buy them online. You can buy them at gun shows, but it's not just gun shows, just so everyone understands. That's a loophole that's been in the law since we had the Brady Act. And that's been tried. The Congress has tried to close that loophole multiple times. One of them was after Sandy Hook. Another time was after the Parkland shootings. And that's something that the NRA has done everything they could to make sure that that loophole doesn't get closed. And, you know, I think that it's, yeah, we can say, oh, well, we can have this like balanced legislation. I, I think that is balanced. I think that's super reasonable. But even that reasonable step of making sure anyone who has a gun has to have a background check is something the NRA, who speaks for the gun community in a big way in Washington, D.C., at least, that's something they don't support. So it gets frustrated. Like for me, it's frustrating to think about this because it's like, even if normal people agree with these things, like you said, you support background checks. 92% of people when asked about this in a Gallup poll in 2018 said that they favored background checks on all gun sales. 
this isn't controversial. But that's, and yet the NRA is opposing it. But but background checks already exist. And so the they exist for federal sellers, which is like which is all sellers. Like you can't sell guns if you're not an FFL. I can do a, a, a th there's additional like you mentioned, there's a additional requirements if you're doing a, a private transfer. But the amount of guns that are sold in private transfer is is. Minuscule. I mean, if 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 I buy a gun from the statistic I found was forty percent. If I I don't think so. I, I mean, if you're a, it's I can give you the source. Sure. I mean, that's I, what I found. I would love to take a look, but I know that if you're, the gun shows that I've been to, the majority of the people at the gun shows are, like your local gun shop, who's an FFL. And so if you buy a gun at that gun show, you still have to fill out a, a forty four seventy three, to initiate a background check. And you have to go through your waiting period. So even though I gave the guy money at the gun show, I'm still going through. It's the it's called NICS. It's the National in Instant Criminal Background Check System. And I, I still have to pass that before I can take possession of the gun. So you know, I I believe you, this is your this is your experience. I'm just telling you the statistic that I've read and. Um, the source for it is uh, Spitzer, it's Politics of Gun Control. This is a book that was written by a professor, and this is cited in a book called Gunfight by Adam Winkler. He's a constitutional law professor. Okay, cool. And it says 40% uh, of all gun purchases occur through private sales at gun shows, at flea markets, through classified advertisements, or among friends with no background check. So I'd be curious to see because... Um... I, I, that's an incredibly high figure, uh, 40%. And I, I would be very surprised if, if that were, if they're accurate, just because there's, I don't know, I, I could be wrong, but, um, I mean, every new firearm has to come from FFL. And so I know every year, you know, more and more guns are bought than the previous year. Um, so I'm just surprised. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to check it out and I can, um, you know, add, you know, so some something at the end once I once I check it out and see if I'm wrong, I'll I'll definitely own up to that. But um, I do know that that if you are going to go through a, a private transfer, you still have to, and especially if the private transfers between individuals different states, you still have to go through an FFL. So already there are laws in place that if you are selling a gun to somebody who you have reason to believe shouldn't own one, or you're selling a gun privately for people that are not in the same state, that's already illegal. I just am worried when, when people say, oh, we need to close the gun, the gun show loophole. Like, okay. If we want a, a background check for every gun that, that sold for every transaction, that's one step away, in my opinion, from a registry, because then you know who every gun, who they belong to. I guess I think that's a good thing like you should know who has these guns and i don't really see what the big issue with that is i think the issue is that that generally the government keeping lists on people is not a good thing and so i'm not in favor of the government having a list to know here's who has the guns and here's who has this gun and this gun and this gun that's that's concerning okay. me because the other side of the gun control debate you know there's the individual freedom of it but then there's also the government tyranny side of the debate where 
guns are a very effective tool bulwark against government tyranny. And there's a ton of examples through history of governments confiscating weapons and then committing atrocities, uh, infringing on people's rights, lives, you know, genocides. There's those examples are numerous. Um, and the United States has a very strong defense against that. Yeah, I, I hear that. I think that's, you know, especially when you look at confiscation of guns or preventing guns from certain populations, minority populations, that's a huge problem. Like the uh, Black Panthers, for instance, specifically wore guns because they wanted to show like we're not we're, we're here and we don't approve of what the government's doing. They didn't use them, but, you know, or in, in most cases, but, you know, it's. I get that. It's a little hard to take that argument with the uh, January 6th insurrection where a lot of people brought guns to Washington because they believed the election was stolen and it wasn't based on false facts, thinking that they were fighting tyranny. And I think that that is the really, really dangerous side of this, of this tyranny argument when there's people who are like fighting the government off of things like that. Um, I don't want to get too far into that because I think that's almost a different discussion. Uh, but I guess when it comes to the background check thing, it, you know, we license people to drive cars. Cars can really injure people. You have to have training. You have to be licensed. You have to have insurance. I mean, that doesn't, this is like an obvious analogy, but I think that, you know, guns are a lot more dangerous than cars. Like you can use them to kill people. So I just don't think that it's asking too much to say, yeah, you have to, have a background check to have this dangerous item. You have to have a license to drive a car. Yeah, but that's so. So I'll 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 share this then um, because I think that that's a good point. A lot of people make that correlation because this is my experience with the laws of the state. I wanted to have a concealed carry permit. If you want to concealed carry a weapon in many states, in my state California, if you want a concealed carry permit, you have to to basically show to your county sheriff why you want that, what the weapon is. You have to go through class. You have to pass an accuracy, a competency test. I think it's something, it's so many hours of, of formal training to bring a weapon with you in public um, concealed. You can't display it you know, visually, but you can conceal it and carry it with you for protection. So a lot of like realtors might have their concealed carry permit because you have homeless people living in a house you don't know if what the situation is. And so for your protection, you can show, here's the deal. When I looked into applying for my concealed carry permit, they said that I had to show proof. I had to show cause and, and proof that I needed to carry a weapon. Strictly for my own self-defense wasn't a good enough reason. They, I had to have documented evidence that I had been a victim of a crime before in the past that I have you know, filed restraining orders against people and that the police weren't sufficient enough protection in my mind and I think others as well. I know New York has similar type of, of laws in place. That's me asking permission to protect me and my family in public. And I can do so in my house. Um, I still follow the, the laws regarding you know, keeping my firearm locked and ammunition locked and everything like that. But for me, I had to request permission from the state, literally, and the state had barriers in place to deny me. Somebody who has no criminal record, I've never been arrested, I'm upstanding in good mental health, you know, I, I would pass any background check that you throw at me to own a weapon, and yet I couldn't do that. And so that is 
in my opinion, very close to my experience that I had in California, where now you're running a background check, a dad gives his gun to his son, whatever reason there is, no, you're in a state that we don't like that, so we're going to deny you, and now we know that we're going to come and confiscate that weapon. Well, I mean, with that example in particular, I guess I think that, you know, some of the people who have committed the mass shootings got the guns from their parents. So, you know, like, yeah, I think you should have a background check if you're passing down a gun to your child because you don't know. I guess it's it's hard for me to get on board with the idea that you don't need background checks. As far as the concealed... I'm not saying you don't need background checks. Okay. Because I, I, I do support background checks, but Adam Lanza wasn't going to get a background check when he took his mom's gun in Sandy Hook. Like he, he already was breaking the law and she was already breaking the law by not keeping it safe. Like there were already laws broken in that regard that I'm not sure that what other laws could have prevented that tragedy. Okay, well then say mass shootings aside, that's, I guess okay. I'm just not understanding. I don't think I'm understanding where you're at on background checks. Because it felt like you were saying you were for them and then it kind of felt like you were saying you were against them. I'm not for universal background checks because I think there's a difference between like the existing system that we have in place today where if you walk into a gun store, you can't just purchase a weapon. You have to, everybody that goes into a gun store has to go through a background check. You, you run through the database, you're, you're asked a questionnaire, lying on that questionnaire also incurs a heavy fine. Private transfers of firearms is one step away, in my opinion, from a, a national gun registry. And that's where I... What's the difference between a, someone having purchasing a gun in a gun store and being on the registry that way and having a, a private sale where people aren't on a registry? To my knowledge, if you go through the background check, you're not added to a registry. There's not a list that's maintained of you run through the system and then that's you're just checked. You're not maintained. Okay. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying. Tell me if this is what it is. If there's a universal background check, that's a slippery slope to a registry. It creates the infrastructure for a registry because now okay. every every transaction of a firearm is is tracked, right? Okay, but then if if you're feeling that most gun sales go through a federally licensed seller anyways, isn't that already happening? I mean, I don't like from the statistics I read, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of sales are happening, not through federally licensed sellers. Mm -hmm. But if your instinct is right and most sales are going through federally licensed sellers, then mm -hmm. wouldn't that be the same thing? I mean, most gun sales would then be through somewhere the government has reference to. You're right. But in my opinion, more gun control only makes it harder for law abiding people to own a weapon. Okay, I take that. Yeah. I'm not really talking about lots of gun control. I'm talking specifically about universal background checks. Okay, then to answer your question, if the data, if, if I'm right, then okay, it's adding say 20% more background checks to the system. If you're right, it's half, it's 40% based off the statistics that you found. So I don't, I don't really know how to, to reconcile that. To me, it seems like going from the current system where it's already illegal for people that shouldn't own a gun to, to own a gun. And there's a, there's a list of, of who those people are. Why do we need more checks where those 
individuals are already breaking a law by obtaining a gun illegally? I think it's different because it's it's not about obtaining the gun illegally. It's about obtaining the gun privately. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, that the universal background check should, I think you should always have a background check. You're buying a gun, whether it's a private seller, whether it's someone passing down a gun, whether it's a friend giving another friend a gun, I just think you need a background check. So, and I think that the background checks have made a difference. I mean, the bradycampaign.org has some information that says between 1997 and 2014, the background check requirement stopped 2.1 million gun purchases, which included 1 million felons, 291,000 domestic abusers, and 118 fugitives. The definition of fugitives have changed since then, but when you look at something like a background check, it actually is making a big difference in terms of who gets guns and who doesn't. And I think that there's fear around increased background checks because of this slippery slope argument of, oh, if we allow this, then we allow this, then we allow this. And I think that the fear of the slippery slope isn't a good reason not to take a very, I think, reasonable measure on ownership of guns. So I, I found something that kind of says something contradictory to that, that, um, that the gun, the California specifically, in 1991, California imposed a comprehensive background check for firearm sales and prohibited sales and possession of people convicted of misdemeanor violent crimes. The legislation would keep more guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Um, that's a quote from Republican governor. And they said more than a quarter of a century later, Researchers at Johns Hopkins and UC Davis dug into the results. Um, researchers compared yearly gun suicide and homicide rates over the 10 years following the implementation of the laws, and they found no change in the rate of either cause of death from firearms through 2000. I agree that checking is good because if you have somebody who's mentally unstable, who has a history of drug use, like they should be prohibited from buying. So I'm, I don't think that, I'm not arguing that background checks aren't effective at all, but I don't know that instituting harsher, stricter, more intrusive background checks will have catch more criminals because criminals typically don't get their guns through an FFL. Okay. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's a little bit of conflicting information. And just so everyone knows, this isn't surprising. There's a lot of conflicting information about gun control. One of the reasons is that there's limitations on how the federal government can actually investigate gun control because of Uh, an amendment in one of the appropriations bills in 1996 that um, restricted funding for uh, the CDC investigating gun control. They still are able to do some investigation and collect some statistics, which a lot of people don't realize, you know, this gets thrown around a lot, like the CDC can't research anything. That's not actually true, but there are restrictions on it. And there's a lot of different studies and different advocacy on both sides. And so you end up with some conflicting statistics and information, which totally muddies the debate and it makes it really hard. So just so people know that's an issue when you're talking about gun control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that that CDC rule just recently changed in the last few years, right? I thought it was fairly uh, Yes, I think recently. Yeah. Here's here's what I'll do. I will look at the, at the, um, the gunfight book that you recommended and... Um, specifically the citation that you mentioned and in next episode we'll we'll revisit that at the top of the episode just to see i don't want to give people the wrong impression if it's incorrect we'll come back to that at the top and uh, clarify for people and to be completely candid that is 
how these conversations go. Like we happen to be recording this one, but that's how conversations go where you can come in feeling really strongly emotionally or statistically and discover partway through that. Are your views being challenged? Is it, are you coming to it from a place that's too emotional or are you not emotional enough and you're just coming in straight statistics? Are your statistics wrong? So I think that that's a really honest way. Like we want to be honest. This is how we talk about things. And as always, our goal is to sort of reframe hard things, confusing things, tough things, emotionally charged topics and kind of come back out of it and where we go from here. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we want to be, humble enough to say when we're wrong about something on both sides. So if this is wrong, I want to know why too. I mean, it's written in this book. So, Mm -hmm. and this, um, for the record, this book by Adam Winkler called Gunfight, it's a history of uh, the second amendment. And I thought it was very balanced, very nonpartisan, which is why I picked it. I didn't want to read a book that was you know, leaning one way or the other. Um, so I really liked it and I would recommend it. It's an easy read too, which is good. Um, like I said, he's a constitutional law professor and he has a lot of, you know, facts, statistics, other, other kinds of things. So, um, but it's still good to get double checked, right? Like, we, yeah. I, I don't know, like I, I didn't go search the footnote for the statistic to figure out where it came from. So. Well, I um, added it to my cart on Amazon, so I'll order it and try to see if I could chunk through it this week. So I think you'll like it actually. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one. And like I said, one of the things I mentioned earlier, the whole culture of gun rights in the United States, that this is a book that really opened my, my eyes to that in mm. a way that I don't think they were before. Cool. I mean, we, we were born out of when the British came and tried to take the rebel arms that conquered, like that was like the birth that was of like the nation. start of the revolutionary war yeah. was people trying to take away guns so that's the spark so it's like yeah. it, how can that not be part of our our national dna um mm-hmm. you know how does that not frame our entire culture when yeah that's where our country came from so i want to know what you think about the nra because something that is this book talks about it but also in lots of articles and especially lots of documentaries i watched one documentary um called NRA under fire from uh frontline just about the NRA so the NRA was developed in or it it was uh, incorporated in 1871 in New York and it was originally sort of a hunting society and also uh training you know the the army used to send people to the NRA to learn how to shoot so it, it was really different than it used to be and the second amendment didn't become something that was really important to the NRA until the 1960s yeah so it's really developed and it definitely did not used to be a huge lobbying political organization which is very much what it is now mm-hmm. and to my mind one of the huge problems with gun control debates and gun information is the NRA so I'd just be curious to know what you think about it as an organization. What what about them do you think is problematic? Because we have lobby because we have lobby groups for a lot of different issues. Yeah, we do. I think that they're they're bigger and they're more influential in terms of their lobbying. And so I think that's one of the reasons it's a problem. Like I think lobbying in general is sort of a problem, but I mean Agreed. just the way they're endorsing candidates, the 
the amount of sway they have, like one of the, it was really interesting after the March for Our Lives and um, President Trump was looking into potentially having gun legislation. Mm-hmm. He had these talks with some of the uh, uh, members of Congress, including Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat that was um, part of the NRA, which is unusual, but he was. And then uh, Wayne LePierre, who was the CEO, um, had a meeting with Trump after these meetings, and then Trump backed off. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's an obvious connection there. Everyone did. And, I, you know, having this amount of power, the, the NRA had given Trump $30 million. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're just, you know, maybe they, I think they're an effective lobbying agency and, or lobbying organization. Maybe that's fine. But I don't think that they, I think their approach is generally no gun control at all. And to me, that goes against even the statistics saying what people are in favor of, including statistics about favorability for background checks, for raising the legal age to purchase. Majority of people are in favor of that. Even banning semi-automatic weapons like AR-15s, which is really controversial, and I think there's a lot more that goes into that. People don't really understand how guns work, and I think that's a problem. But even people are in favor of that, and every one of these things the NRA radically opposes. And so I think they have a lot of power, and they're not representing the will of the people. That's my problem with the NRA. So I think that that's probably reasonable. I think that sometimes the NRA, I mean, they're, they're effective. I'll give them that. No matter what you say about them, like they are effective. I don't always agree with the tactics, but, you know, I, I don't support an a AR-15 ban. You know, and so for, for me as, as a gun owner and as somebody who lives in a state where it's very difficult to acquire an AR-15, I feel like the NRA does kind of speak for me. I don't know that they're always effective. I think that I prefer other gun lobbying groups um, that are more focused on like lawsuits rather than just strictly lobbying. One of them is the Firearms Policy Coalition. I like them a lot because they, I don't know how much lobbying they do, but they do do advocacy and they do do, um, they do sue. That is, I think, more effective and less saber rattling than the NRA is. I don't think the NRA takes politicians who are anti-gun and swings their vote to be gun. I mean, I think that when, when you're having people like, the big one was Beto, right? And the the Democratic primary, who's like, hell yeah, we're going to come for your AR-15s. Like, I I did appreciate that the NRA was there to advocate against that. It's the most popular weapon in the country, and it's no different from a like twenty-two ranch rifle that you have that is wood. Right, and that's why I said I think there's issues with the AR-15 thing, and that people right. don't understand differences between guns. I think that's one of the problems when we're talking about gun control. Yeah. Um. So I agree with that, but. It's just, I think there's other gun rights organizations that do a better and more honest job and don't do the fear-mongering thing that the NRA does. And so that's something that really bothers me yeah. about them. And also right now, just for reference, there's big charges of corruption against their upper leadership going on. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, has a lawsuit against them currently because of misappropriation mm-hmm. of money, which happens in a lot of lots of organizations, not to downplay that, but yeah. I think that's another like strike against them. If they're misappropriating the funds that people are giving them, that's also a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that that I because they are pro Second Amendment, I in spirit I support them. 
Um, I was an NRA member, but I decided a couple years ago I'm not going to renew my membership with them. I just didn't feel like it was an effective use of my money. I now would rather donate to, like I mentioned before, the Firearms Policy Coalition. I agree with you that they are fear-mongering. I don't think that's great for the environment, but the messaging, and I, they are defending, in my view, they are defending my Second Amendment. So I, it's it's hard to, to separate that for me personally. Okay. Yeah, I get that. We might need to cut because we're going long, but I just have to ask you about this. Yeah. So in terms of your Second Amendment rights, this is something that like I hear over and over and over again, right? It's like, these are my rights and you can't trample on them. I get that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, for any right that we have, there's restrictions on it. Mm-hmm. All of our rights, including something like freedom of speech, which is a really protective right in the United States, but we have time, place, and manner restrictions, right? There's You can't just say anything anywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's restrictions on uh, newspapers. You can't just print anything about anyone all the time. You can't maliciously print false things. So there's restrictions on our rights. And I think that the approach of the NRA and some of these other gun rights groups is you can't restrict this right at all. And if you are, you're breaking the constitution and not protecting our rights. And I think that another thing that people don't think about is that in order to have our other rights, we have to pull back on some. So this really comes up with like freedom of speech versus freedom of religion. They're always in competition with each other. But even something like freedom of assembly, if you can't go out and assemble and not be afraid of like a mass shooting, you know, then you don't actually have that full right. If you can't go to school, which isn't a right under the constitution, but say, you know, the right to education without being afraid of of dying at school, then that's, then your rights not being protected. And so I think there's a balance of rights here as well. And this, the Second Amendment right, you know, I would argue is not the most important right in the Constitution. Some people would argue that it is. Even if you take that argument, there is restrictions on it. And that doesn't mean that you're not respecting the Second Amendment. Sure. Um, yeah, well said. I I do think that, that certain rest, uh, restrictions are appropriate, even though selfishly, I wish they weren't there. Um, like, I think it's under the National Firearms Act, you have to undergo a an additional background check, and you have to pay a $200 tax to obtain a, um, like a silencer, or silencer is a bit of a misnomer, but a suppressor to make your gun shoot quieter, or to obtain an automatic weapon. So automatic weapons are illegal nationwide majority right you can if you obtain the tax stamp and and undergo the scrutiny then you can obtain an automatic weapon so i do think that in general i think it's probably a good thing that automatic weapons are a little bit more restricted than semi-auto i'm not an absolutist when it comes to that i do think it's reasonable to have certain restrictions my issue with with gun control if i really had to try to just you know summarize it quickly is that a lot of the measures that i see proposed are not effective. A lot of people love to point to like Australia and Great Britain as look, they had tragic mass shootings and they instituted, you know, certain measures and then now there's no more mass mass deaths and things are are better there. If you look at all the data from that, you know, the Australia ban, the England ban, in my opinion, going back to our original goal for for this debate was less people dead. The data doesn't bear that out. And so I don't think that additional restraints on guns are necessarily the most effective way to prevent more deaths. There's plenty of research of research out there and, and one of the most 
famous is, is by John Lott, who's done a lot of information, or a lot of research regarding the prevalence of guns and then the decreased rate of, of crime. And one of the things that is, is seen is that ne not necessarily causal, but at least correlationally, that the more guns there are in an area, the less crime there tends to be. So I think that certain restrictive measures in place are a good thing, but I don't think that overdoing it and creating too much of restriction, I think that actually has a negative effect on public safety and, and could lead to more death. It's a fine line to try to find out what the right balance is. And I don't know what it is, but I do think that you should have some restrictions. I know that suppressors actually are a net good. I know a lot of the hunting community would love if suppressors were more available just because it's safer for your ears, safer for the shooters. So, um, yeah, I actually, uh, yeah. I talked to one of our friends named Spencer about this and the suppressors was something he specifically brought up that this is something that people use for hunting yeah. so that they don't go deaf yeah. for the most part. And also espresso doesn't work the way, you know, movie silencers work. It doesn't make a gun silent. That's not how, that's not how it works. Yeah. So I do want to mention one quick thing about John Lott. So he wrote this book, more guns, less crime. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a big deal in the gun community. Um, Jim Lingrid, who's a Northwestern professor, looked into all of the research that Lot did and wasn't able to replicate any of it and asked for his asked for Lot's research for his surveys. Lot said that he didn't have them and that they had lost all the data in a computer crash and he wasn't able to provide them. And then there were these reviews online about Lot after this because he was getting a lot of heat, you know, saying he's great. It was from this uh, student of his um, saying he was a a great researcher. He didn't have an ideology. He was just writing this. And it turns out that Lot was the one who wrote those reviews. <laughs> so he is controversial and I wouldn't say he's the best evidence okay. for more guns being uh, more protective. Okay. Uh, there may be other statistics out there that show that, but I don't think that John Lot is necessarily the best source. Okay. I mean, that's good to know. I, I'm glad that you brought that up. I, I will say uh, some of the research that he's done has been backed up by other institutions. So maybe it was that specific study. I, I'm not sure. Like, I know he's done a lot of investigation into like other countries' gun violence rates compared to ours. Yeah, I think just in general, yeah. those comparative studies are not super helpful because the U.S. just has it's a different gun culture. And we yeah. also have so many more guns like you just you almost kind of can't compare because it's like apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not super helpful yeah. regardless of which study you use or, or who, who the person is. I, I kind of agree with you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of times the countries that are brought up are more much more homogenous, which plays a role. Right. We're a very diverse country. There's a lot of varying influences that, that we have in terms of urban centers versus not. And so it's not always best to, to do that comparison. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about that because I hadn't heard that about him before. And I've definitely looked him up. So, yeah, that's it's in this book. Oh. We'll read about it. OK, cool. <laughs> I had never heard of him before until I read this. Oh, okay. And then I was like, oh, interesting. So this this professor, Jim Lingrid, apparently he like 
when he went after John Lott, but he also went after some liberal person who wrote a opposite sounding book and he tried to go back and check, fact check all of it. Mm -hmm. And like 90%, not 90%, a huge percentage of it was made up. And this person had, I can't remember who it was, Borellis or something, uh -huh. had like written a book and it, and it got a prize and the prize got rescinded. Like oh, this professor just has it on his back to go um, fact check people, I guess. That's cool. We need people yeah. like that for sure. We do. Yeah. We do. It's cool. I do want to give a quick shout out to Spencer who talked to me about this before I uh, got on. I really want to talk to someone who owned guns and had really thought about it. So uh, shout out to Spencer. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot more to unpack and we'll we'll address it in the future. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to part two of gun control. Me too. So I do want to just do a quick little wrap up. I, I think we had a good discussion on it and I don't think necessarily disagreed as much as I thought, but also there were some disagreements in, in positions and stuff. So I, I appreciate that. And I'm glad that we were finally able to talk about it. Yeah, me too. After I finished uh, doing my research, one of my thoughts was actually, I bet Zach's going to be surprised by things that I agree with when we talk about this. Yeah, definitely was. You know, I, I, I tried to not come in with any preconceived ideas of like, oh, how you would feel about X, Y, or Z. So I think the biggest thing was the, the background checks. And I feel like everything else, we were like a little bit more aligned and, and at least with wiggle room. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we talked about it. For sure. I think that's just about going to do it for us. Um, if you liked the episode, if you found it informational, or if we helped you sleep, or whatever the case may be, please rate us five stars wherever you're listening. Uh, it really helps. This is episode two, and we hope to be doing this for a long time. And with your support, we can make that happen. If you have questions, please write in to us. Um, we're on Instagram. Uh, you can email us. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're on YouTube at Reframers Podcast. And you'll find us there. We really love the support and look forward to talking to you guys next time. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. Your support means a lot.